This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. The context of parables uh, often takes place in a meal. We're looking at been with us the last couple of months, we've been looking at Jesus Christ in the context of a meal and how oftentimes the meal context is used in those ancient times for Jesus to tell startling truths about the gospel, about who he is, about what he came to do. And, and Jesus uses meals. He uses the parable of the prodigal son. There's a feast. In Matthew 22, there's a story about a, a wedding meal. So, you know, what are these parables? What are these types of stories? And to give you a little bit of a, a background and understanding what parables are, parables, they have, they're a story that has an ironic, they contain like an ironic twist that at that time, if you were living in those days, it would shock anybody who'd hear the story because the truth embedded in that story is completely counterintuitive, countercultural, and uh, as a result, the truths embedded in it will teach us a bit more about Jesus in this context. And so here we have two men. Uh, it begins with a meal. That's the context. Um, and uh, we have one person who's feasting, the other person who can't even get to the table. Um, but from this story, we're going to learn three things. We're going to learn that, about the gospel. And in the gospel, we have identity, we have freedom, we have power. The gospel gives us an identity. The gospel gives us freedom. The gospel gives us power. First, identity. It begins in this parable. In the beginning of it, uh, we're introduced to two characters. They're very, very different. The first one we know is rich. The second one is poor. The first one is dressed in royalty, fine linens. The other one is a beggar, and he's dressed in sores. He's covered in sores, Jesus says. The first one is feasting at a table. The second one is barely longing to just eat the crumbs that are coming from the table. The rich man, he has, he's given a funeral. But this poor man, 
there's not even a reference as to how he died, which probably means that he died in the streets. We know many people like that. We've seen many people like that. But the main point of contrast between these two people is not the fact that one of them goes to heaven and the other goes to hell. The real difference is one of them has a name, and it's not coincidental. One of them has a name. Dozens of parables throughout the the Gospels, Jesus tells, all of them, the main subject never has a proper name. There's always a father. There's always a mother. There's a, there's a woman. There's always a man, a certain man. There's a son or a daughter. There's usually a farmer or a sower. Except in this parable, in this parable, again, the main character does not have a proper name. But his juxtaposed personality, his juxtaposed person, this poor man is given a proper name. Lazarus. Lazarus, which means God is my help. God is my help. God is my savior. God is all I have. Lazarus has a name. In verse 25, from heaven, Abraham says to this rich man who says he's suffering in torment, he's suffering in agony, he says, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, it's just in your lifetime, the short span of time, you wasted your life. The difference between these two men is what is your help? What is their help? Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is naked. He's hungry. He's forgotten. He's not even given a proper burial. But God is his help. God is the sum of his worth. God is the only good thing that he has in his life. God is all he has. God is all he needs. This rich man, what are these good things that Abraham is talking about? He says, you've had, in your lifetime, you have had your good things. This rich man is rich. This man, he has his wealth. He has status. He has people surrounding him, loving him because of his wealth and because of his status and because of his pedigree. He's satisfied. He says, I have everything I need. But he doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a name. Once he dies, the wealth is gone. He's lost everything. He's lost himself. He's lost his name. This passage teaches us that when you make riches... When you make anything apart from your relationship with Christ, when that thing becomes your identity, that's all that you are in a sense. You don't have a name. You're just a rich man. Or just, you're just a good-looking person. Or you're just an intelligent person. But when you take away these things, you've got nothing left. Take, some, take a person. They're attractive. And so they have this incredible power to attract people just based on their looks. Take a wealthy person, a person with tremendous status. They have buying power. They can walk through a place and they can walk up and down a street and say, yeah, I could afford that. I can afford that. In fact, they sometimes purchase things because they can just afford it. Take somebody who's got a beautiful career. In fact, did all the right things starting from when they were in middle school because it takes a tremendous amount of discipline. I don't want to take away from how much discipline it takes to get to that end point in your career that beautiful, glorious endpoint. So from middle school, they have been pretty much bred and trained to rise up to the upper echelons of academic intelligence in society. And they've got there. They've arrived. They have a wonderful career, an illustrious career that's going to draw lots of different types of people. When they have parties, it's not just going to be a simple party. It's going to be one with tremendous prestige, people who are looking up to you, especially if you've risen to the top. 
And when you get married, you're going to have these beautiful children. You're going to work to have these wonderful children. You've got a beautiful pedigree, a wonderful career, a beautiful marriage, at least on the outside, and you've got a wonderful children, beautiful children. You may have a wonderful pedigree, so to speak. It's not just about you. You have parents who are wealthy, parents who have, or are part of society, parents who have tremendous status, who may be known as intellects in their own right. But in every case, if you listen carefully to this, what is the emphasis? What gives each of these people a sense of worth? What is their identity? That is their help, and that is their God. How do you know that? How do you know? I mean, how do you identify what your gods are? When you are attractive and you feel inferior to another person who is attractive, that's your emphasis. You know, we call that being consumed by something. Right? It could be momentary. It could be long-standing. Um, when you have poured your life, or at least for the time being, poured a lot of your time into building a relationship, and when you're single, you pour lots of time into the relationships around you. Uh, so biologists will call that an evolutionary cycle because that's the only way you can eventually link up with somebody and then procreate, right? But from a social standpoint, from an emotional standpoint, a psychological standpoint, and a spiritual standpoint, we need relationships. So we invest in our relationships. When you lose a relationship and you're just devastated by that loss, when you walk into a place and you just feel the need to have to compare yourself to another person, when you pride yourself in how you look, now nobody sits there uh, and, and like the fairy tales, stare into the mirror and say, who is the fairest one of them all? I mean, nobody ever does that. But when you actually know yourself to be an attractive person, but you start to feel age and you realize you can't keep up because your body is fighting against uh, your methods of trying to look younger. When you pour your life into your career, into that salary, and then you lose your job because, you know, for, it doesn't even have to be about your mistakes, you know, or just who you are, but it could be the economy. Something goes wrong and derails you from your career or your children get incredibly sick or you've disappointed your parents or you've damaged your reputation. It could be high or low, complex or simple, superficial or very, very deep. Whatever you say, I have no reason to live. Whenever you say to yourself, I have no reason to live. I, I just can't see what's ahead of me. I can't, I can't go on. What now? What now of my life? Because I feel like a nothing. You've lost yourself. You've lost your name. What is a name? What is a name? To have a name is to have an identity, to know who you are, to know that you're valuable, that you're significant, to have purpose, to have direction. When you build, the Bible says, when you build your life on God, if God is the source of your identity, then whether you lose your job, whether you gain something, you still have a you because your you is not built or anchored into these things that you've invested in. You still have a self. You still have an identity circumstances don't necessarily, I mean, it's going to hurt you, but it won't devastate you. They're not going to affect to the core of who you are. They're not going to affect the core of how you view value in life, your place in the world. It's not going to affect you to the point of your direction in life. Lazarus is a great example. He had nothing, but he still had a name. He had a self. He knew himself. He didn't have friends. He didn't have a family. You don't see any mention of family or friends. You don't see any mention of women in his life who are surrounding him because of his attractiveness or his popularity. He's not popular. There are not parties thrown for him. In fact, there's no burial thrown for him. 
He's got nothing. He's got no money. He's got no career. In fact, insignificant to the point of death. Insignificant to the point of death. They didn't even know. Jesus couldn't even tell you how he died. He had no title. He doesn't even have food. He's hungry. He went through the most dramatic change a person can go through, which is death. And yet, through that death, through that weakness, through that uh, shallow uh, core of a body that he had, he was birthed into a new self. That was Lazarus. Great example. The rich man, notice, there's nothing that says that speaks to his moral character. Jesus is not trying to pit one person as a very good person and one person as a very bad person. That's not what he's trying to do. There's nothing that speaks to the rich man's moral character or Lazarus's character for that matter. There's nothing that speaks to his religious character. He just doesn't have a name. He's not known. What that tells us is that Christianity is not about how well you obey. It's more about who or what is God in your life and how God is your help. Do you bank or anchor your life and trust and worth and identity and value and significance and direction because that is what's going to steer your life and steer your direction and steer your decisions. Do you see God as your help? That's what, the, that's what Christianity tells us. If you build your life on anything other than God, on your career, on your security, on your children, on your relationships, on your talent, on your, uh, your uh, reputation or, or pride, on your looks, and something comes to threaten it, then you're going to feel anxious. If something comes to damage it, you're going to get angry. If something comes and you lose it, you're going to be, dis- you're going to be in utter despair, utter loss. You've lost your sense of worth and your value. You've lost your sense of purpose and your identity. Do you see that? To get the gospel, first and foremost, is to have an identity, to be known by God. Look at Lazarus. He had nothing. Suffering all his life, forgotten by the world. But what sent him to heaven was not his poverty. He was pouring out his suffering even onto God. God was his help. That means every day, I mean, if you've got to think about it, here's this man who barely longed to eat from the table of rich people, barely eating crumbs, hungry all his life, withering away by the day. He probably died of some sickness or poverty, you know, of, or, you know how long it takes to die from hunger? He probably died from sicknesses wrought on by hunger after hunger, diseases being exposed to the elements outside, nobody caring, shunning him, despised, and not having relationships will make you go crazy. If you don't have relationships in life, it makes you go crazy. That's why they shut down Alcatraz in San Francisco. Back then, Alcatraz, actually, aside from the money that it took to maintain Alcatraz, they shut it down because people were kept in solitary confinement for lengthy periods of time. It brought on a huge lawsuit because ultimately they went crazy. They went crazy and it made them more murderous, even inside the prisons. Without relationships and money and health, what do you have in the world? Here's Lazarus. He had nothing. He was suffering all of his life. And yet, God was his help. He became more. He was birthed into more of who he was, more of himself. He discovered his true self after he died. When we look to other things to increase our identity, our options, our potential, and our freedom, we actually become less of a person. That's what this passage is telling us. The rich man had everything, became less of who he was after he died. When eternity overtook this rich man, well, when the eternity overtook Lazarus, 
It exploded in, into heaven, but this rich man, when eternity overtook him, emptiness exploded in him like a bomb. And he, became, he experienced the ultimate bankruptcy. And as a result, he had nothing, not even a name. Do you see that? The second thing this teaches us is the gospel gives us freedom. It's all about freedom. In verse 23, here's the rich man. He's in hell and he's in torment. Now, some of us, some of you here believe in hell. Other people reject the notion of hell, but you've got to get this. This passage says two remarkable things about hell. First, hell is a fire. Hell is a fire. Why is fire so often used to describe hell? It's because fire, I mean, hell, uh, fire is used to describe God for that matter. Fire consumes. When something is in flames, when something burns up, it doesn't actually cease to exist. If you are, if you have ever taken a um, you know, sophomore chemistry, if you've ever taken chemistry in college, fire doesn't uh, actually make something cease to exist. Rather, what it does is it takes these chemical bonds and these properties that hold these molecules together and it shapes it and changes it, breaks them apart in a way. That's what fire does. So that fire breaks things down and things that were once coherent become incoherent. Things that become integrated become disintegrated. And so you don't cease to exist. You still see something, some remnant there in the fire. It's just that the chemical bonds have, broke, have been broken so deeply that it's ultimately the molecules have been broken apart in such a fashion that things that were once integrated have become disintegrated. The Bible says that it's not just hell, but sin disintegrates all that you are, your whole being, your body, your psychology, your spirit, your soul. That's what the Bible is saying. Think about this. No matter how much, right now in your lifetime, no matter how hard you try to escape God, no matter how much you rebel, no matter how much you complain and grumble against God sometimes, you're never completely away from God. You're always, we call that common grace. Theologically, we call that common grace. The sun is always still going to shine on you, whether you are good or bad, whether you were rebelling against God or completely under the umbrella of God's grace. You were always a part of God's common grace. And as a result, you're always going to be kept somewhat intact in your life. You're, you know, your body's going to be decaying little by little. Your soul may be decaying little by little, sometimes even unnoticeable to you. But you're still intact for the most part. As long as you're alive, your body and your soul, they're integrated. And so you're still able to work. And you're still able to have a family. You're still able to care for people and to love them. You're still able to think creatively. You're able to create things and build things. You're still able to enjoy the finer things that life, this world, has in it, contained in it. But the Bible says someday, if you continue to run, if you continue to rebel, and you run and you run and you run and you rebel and you rebel and you rebel, you might succeed for a while on this earth. But one day, you will succeed in your running altogether completely because one day you will get completely away from God. That's what we call hell. That's what hell is. Hell is a place after you're dead where people who really wanted to get away from God actually succeed. That's what hell is. Hell is this place where the disintegrating work that began in your life becomes exploded, explodes into completion. We call that hell. The disintegration becomes complete. It comes full term. Here's an example. I probably shared this example at some point through, through the year at some point. Um, Miele appliances are these German uh, appliances, um, and uh, they're considered some of the best appliances in the world. And uh, Miele, they're, they're known for things like washers and dryers. 
And uh, you know, I'm fascinated by uh, electronics and appliances and how they work and the differences. Uh, and some say that the most efficient washing machines in the world come from Miele, this company, this German company. Now, it's also interesting to know that the most customer service calls to Miele come from the United States. Why? Because American appliances, they're not known for their efficiency. Miele appliances are the washer and dryer, the, the washer system, and,、uh, the Miele washers, they're so efficient that you barely see water. When you look into the, the front loading washer, when you look in, you barely see any water in there. Things are just spinning. You can't tell if your clothes are wet. And so, Americans who are used to having, you know, do you know that American appliances, they actually squirt the water at the window? It's to let you know that it's working. You know, they're dumbing your intelligence down to let you know, yes, it's functional, yes, it's working. They're squirting not at the clothes. They're squirting at the window to let you know that this thing is working. So as it's working, you know. Oh, Americans say, "Oh, yes, functioning washing machine, right?" But when they buy a Miele, they say they invest all this money, and they're two or three times as expensive. You buy this Miele appliance, and, and you're looking in there. You're like,、well, "I don't see any water in here." And you turn the, you know, you turn on your light, and you look in. There's nothing in there. What they do is they they, they call the customer service. You know why? It's because we're known to not read our manuals. We don't read our manuals. What is a manual? Manuals. Uh, are uh, they're full of directions? They tell you how to operate something according to its design. They tell you how something works. If you read a Miele manual, it's very, very, it's very, very. It's not concise, but it'll tell you a lot. It'll tell you this is a high, efficient, highly efficient、uh, product, which means that it uses just enough water in the clothing itself. Miele appliances work in such a way that.、Uh, Uh, I feel like I'm like a Miele salesman.、Uh, Miele appliances work in such a way that you, when you put something in after you buy it and you wash it, it comes out pretty much as you bought it. That's what they're designed to do. And so your clothes never get old by the washing. A lot of clothes break down, fabric breaks down just by washing the spin cycle, right? And so、um, these appliances, these these manuals,、uh, appliances come with manuals. The manuals tell you how to operate according to the design. They'll tell you don't do this. You might blow it out. You know, do this.、Uh, keep it maintained. That's how you keep long life and lasting. You know, otherwise there's going to be danger. There may be breakdown. There may be pain to you.、Uh, when you buy a product, all in this entire illustration, just to tell you, when you buy this product, and you're reading through this manual, and at some point you put the manual down, how many of you say, you know, well, who does Miele or Bose or BMW or Samsung? Who are they to tell me how to run my appliance? Now I mean I get that they designed it, but who are they to tell me how to run? I'm gonna do what I want with it. You never say that. You know why? I mean, well, if you're a woman, at least what you're gonna do is they're gonna carefully read the manual and, and they know exactly how to run something. Men, they're like,、oh, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And you see the difference. Men's appliances break down quicker. You know, women's are maintained a lot better, at least from my knowledge in my own home.、Um, you want to read these manuals because you're, you've invested a tremendous amount in in this thing. And you know what it takes to uphold and maintain the design. Why? Because it's from its maker. The maker is going to tell you. The maker knows that if you violate certain directions, violate your design, it's going to lead to breakdown and disintegration. Now think about this: the more self-centered, the more proud, the more your life breaks down, you start to disintegrate. It's already happening. It's happening in all of our lives. The more you center everything on yourself, the more it gets harder to love. The more you center and absorb everything in yourself, the more it gets harder. It gets more and more difficult to care, to think outside of yourself, to think for other people. 
The Bible says eventually you become a scoffer, what the Bible calls a scoffer. After a while, everything revolves only around you. Everything revolves around you and your family, what you treasure. If you think about what self-righteousness does, years and years of living just well, living good, being a good person, getting approval from other people. Getting, it starts as an oldest son. It starts with my parents. My mom will say, oh, he's the oldest son. He's responsible. He's good. He's the good boy. And as a result, oldest children tend to become people pleasers. You think after a while, in the most instinctive way, you don't even think twice. It's instinctive that the possibility of error in your life, when you're called out, it's always somebody else's fault. Why? Because you have to be perfect. You have to be good, Right? oldest children, you probably relate with that. The very thought of being called out by something is very, very hard to take. Why? It has to be somebody else's fault. It cannot be you because you're the good child. I've lived well in my life. How are you going to pick this little thing? That's, oh, that's, that's society or the environment, the people around me. That's what happens. It's always somebody's fault. Or uh, after a while, you develop what some people call because if you've risen to a certain point where you've lived well and you've lived well for years and years and years and you've become identified as a very good person, after a while, when something wrong happens to you, when something, uh, when there's suffering in your life, you develop what some people call a majestic form, a majestic self-pity. Nobody understands what I go through. Nobody understands the pressures of my life. Nobody understands the things that I have to endure Nobody, nothing ever goes right for me. That's majestic self-pity. And, and that's hell. That's hell. It's the breaking down of your soul. In hell, you have self-pity and self-centeredness. That's what you see in this rich man. Self-pity, self-centeredness. It's like a crazy firestorm. It's like a fire. It completely consumes you. The consumption is already beginning. But at some point, it becomes complete in you. That's what happens. And the more proud you get, you know, today you're blind. You know, but people around you already see. That's why it's so important to have community around you. And when I mean my community, let me define that. I don't mean having friends. When I say having community, I don't mean just having people in your life that you can enjoy life with and do life with in that way. When I'm talking about community, I'm talking about people who can speak into you, who actually see you disintegrating. That's what I mean by community. I'm going to say this for the next two or three weeks to make sure that everybody gets this. Right? Today you may be blind, but people around you see. And in time, you're going to be trapped in your self-centeredness. You're going to be trapped in your selfishness and in your self-absorption. And the more proud you get, you become even more certain that it's somebody else's fault. And that becomes a terror to live with. That becomes a terror to be around. You see it in this text. Where do you see it? There are three things that this rich man says. The first thing the rich man says to Abraham. Notice, he's not even talking to God. He talks to Abraham, verse 24. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony. That's what he says. Merely what he's saying is, I am disintegrating. I'm falling apart. He's not even speaking to God because of his pride. He speaks to Abraham. You know why? He speaks to Abraham to order Lazarus. Who is Abraham to him then? Abraham is his employee. It's almost as if Abraham works for this guy. That was a job to tell somebody, even to tell somebody to set orders to dip, you know, water and bring the water to you. That's a job that only a servant would have. That's a job only a slave would have. That's the rich man's view of Abraham. That's the rich man's view of Lazarus. Why? Because the rich man is so used to being on top and so used to seeing Lazarus at the bottom. He still thinks he's the mature one. He still thinks he's the, the authority. He still thinks that his wealth, because of his wealth, he's on top. 
He's still ordering Lazarus around or people like Lazarus around as if he's on top. He doesn't realize that there's been a reversal of fortune. The rich man is now on the bottom and it's Lazarus who's on top. He doesn't see that. He's so blind and he's, as a result, he's ordering Abraham, still ordering Lazarus around as if he's on top. He's still clinging to his former status. He's still clinging to what was his identity. I was a rich man. I had everything. You should please send Lazarus down. Please send him down. I'm dying here. Don't you know who I am? I was a rich man. I was wealthy. I had status. Don't you know where I studied? Don't you know who my parents are? That's the rich man. He's blind to his condition. He's blind to his need. He understands his agony, yes. But he's absolutely blinded by what's happened to him. The second thing you see in verse 27, the rich man says, Send Lazarus then to warn my brothers. I have these brothers. I have a family. Please send Lazarus to warn them. I need, they need a proper warning. What's, what's, his, what's he implying here? What he's implying is, I didn't get the proper warning before I died. So at least send Lazarus to warn my family. Lazarus never warned me. It's Lazarus' fault. So please send him to warn my family. No one ever gave me a chance is what he's saying. And Abraham says, what? In your lifetime, you had your shot. You had a shot like everybody else. You had good things. You could have seen even more. You had a greater capacity. That's what Abraham is saying. You blew it. You wasted it. He's still blaming other people. He's still making excuses. He's still justifying himself. He's living in a world of self-pity. The third thing he says is, oh, he asks Lazarus to come, and he comforts him. That's what he does. He says, I need Lazarus to come and comfort me. Touch my tongue with water. But you notice, he never asks to get out. To the end, he never asks for God to be his help. He never asks to get out. He never asks for forgiveness completely blind to his sin. He wants relief. That's the help he wants. Superficial relief. And that tells you something about hell. Hell is a place that people choose. I grew up thinking that hell is this place where if I don't live well, one day I die and everybody kind of wakes up around me and they say, oh, how did I get here? And we all kind of wake up. And uh, the angel comes down, and it's like this elaborate, you know, it's in my, at least this is not in the Bible. It's just my picture, picture my, I used to think that, uh, you know, the angel comes down and like opens up this vault. And when he opens up the vault, this huge flame bursts out. And everybody goes, ah. And then all, one by one, the angel kind of picks you up, you know, like a stork, you know, dropping off the children, and then drops you in. They go, ah. And then after everyone gets dropped in, the angel like closes and there's like a big microphone at the bottom of the vault, and he and shuts it. You hear the shutting and cranking, and you hear the voice of God saying, you know, you, you had such an opportunity to live well, but now you're mine. <laughs> and then you're like, no, no, help us, help us. Please, please, you know, help us. We were wrong. You know, now we have, we've lost our chance. That's actually not what hell is, actually, <laughs> right? Um, uh, what happens here, uh, what is hell? Hell is this place that we choose. It's always something we choose. Hell is nothing more than what we naturally ask for. Like I said earlier, if you're running from God and running from God, running from God, distant from God, rebelling from God, not even really thankful for God, just 
you know, completely disregarding or neglecting God in your life. Think about your day, the things that you're consumed with. Um, that's, your, that's pride. And if you just, you know, kind of let that go for 80, 90 years, what happens is you become pride. You bec- if you're complaining for 30 years of your life, you become a complaint. You, you grumble for 30 or 40 years of your life, you scoff for 30 or 40, you become a scoffer. That's, you just be- that's your identity. That's basically what happens. And hell, so hell is really nothing more than what you naturally ask for. You always choose it. The rich man says, I'm suffering. But he never says, get me out, please. I'm sorry. And that teaches us two things. One, look at your pride. I mean, it's hard to really look at your pride. The very nature of having pride, it's, hard to, it's easy to be blind to it. Look, are you jealous? Do you compare yourself often with people? Look at your envy, covetousness. It begins with very subtle comparisons. It just sits in there. Then you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. And it starts to kind of rile itself up. Lots of arguments and fights over jealousy. Over the years, things get worse. The worsening continues. C.S. Lewis says, the worsening continues into eternity until you become exactly what you envision. That is hell. You're angry and you're complaining. Hell begins with grumbling, irritations, being slightly critical of things. Eventually, you can't stop. You just criticize everything. You know, eventually, there's nothing good. Everything is worth criticizing, except for you, of course, right? You're always complaining. You're always blaming other people. You even, sometimes you're self-critical. C.S. Lewis says, eventually, you become a grumble. That's hell. That's why hell's a fire. That's why it's a fire. Because uh, we said that it becomes this, the disintegration of your soul until you're eventually consumed. That's why hell's a fire. The second thing we learn about hell is there's isolation. There's a distancing. Verse 24, this rich man is in agony. He's begging for relief. He sees Abraham and Lazarus. And Abraham says in verse 25 to 26, here's the rich man begging for help. Begging for help. He says, just, just cool my tongue. I need relief. Abraham says, I can't. Why? Because there is a chasm that's too distant between you and I. Too far. In other words, the more self-centered you become, the more self-absorbed you become, the more self-righteous you become, the more self-pitying you are, the more blame-shifting you are, the more self-justifying you are, eventually there will be no one left around. You're going to lose everybody. You're going to be completely alone. You're going to lose people. It's already beginning for some of you. You're already losing people in your life. And eventually, the one person who's been there all along, you will lose. That's hell. Hell is not what I thought it used to be. Hell is everything. You don't ever get thrown into hell. You choose it. No one in hell ever asks, get me out. No one's even trying to get out because you choose it. Lazarus is on earth. He's got no options, no freedom, no potential, and he dies. But in that brokenness, in that death, he's increased his options, increased his freedom, increased his potential, and increased his life. Because he has a name, because he's known by God, because his name is I'm helped by God. Where do you get the power to have that? Where do you get that power? The rich man says, verse 27 to 28, he says, uh, I know what it's going to take uh, to avoid this. 
You know, I realize now in my circumstances, in my life, I blew it. I get it. I, I know what it's going to take to avoid this. Please send Lazarus to help my family. What's the rich man want? If Lazarus shows up, they'll get it. Abraham says towards the end of this text here, verses 29 to 31, it's not going to work. That's basically what Abraham says there. That's not going to work. It doesn't work. Because if somebody shows up, your family is going to get scared because they've seen a ghost or some sort of apparition. They're going to get really scared. Now, you guys all watch horror movies. Does that make your life different tomorrow? Does anybody sit there and watch The Conjuring and say, I really need to change my life? Nobody says that. You watch it, you get scared. If anything, it's going to change maybe uh, how closely you sleep to your wife that night or maybe who, you know, if you're, maybe I should sleep over my friend's house or something like that. It might change that for the moment, but no one wakes up. You know, no one looks at a, a ghost. No one sees something like that and says, yeah, my life needs to change. You may, in fact, using fear or punishment or guilt, it may hammer them. It may beat them. Even if someone rises from the dead, Abraham says, it may hammer them, it may scare them, but it will not change your identity. That's what Abraham's saying. It will not change your identity. The rich man says, gosh, if someone were to come back from the dead, they're going to get it. But Jesus actually goes even further and he says, no, not even if someone rises from the dead. In the Greek, whenever you see that word rise, rising, it's always in reference to Jesus Christ. It's always in reference to himself. Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Mainly what he's saying is, even if I rise from the dead, even if you see my hands and my feet, it's not going to work. That's, that, if you just see that, it's not going to work. You need to know why I rose from the dead. So that's why Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, don't they? That's all they need. Because Moses and the prophets... We're going, to experience, we're going to explain to you why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die, and why Jesus had to rise again. Moses and the prophets will explain. Why do, you need, why do you build your identity on the things you do? Your work, your relationships. Some people, it's their politics. Some people, it's their, the rights that they have. It's because we all want acceptance. We've had some major changes over the last couple of weeks in terms of defining relationships. And really, why is there such a fight? You have to put yourself in those shoes for a moment. You know, why, whether you agree or not with the things that have happened, why do people fight for it? You know why? Because in the end, everybody wants to be validated. Everybody wants love. We need it. We're built that way. We're designed to have love and acceptance in our lives, approval, a place where we can say, I'm safe, I'm secure, I belong. We place cosmic weight on things. Now, we just learned, if you do that on anything else but God himself, your relationship with Jesus Christ alone, then that's going to begin the disintegration and the isolation. So even if you're fighting for these things without Jesus Christ at the center of any of these things, it's going to lead to disintegration, even the disintegration of those relationships. Now, what can lift you then from that majestic self-pity, from that self-absorption, from that selfishness? Because you think willpower is going to change that? You think fear is going to change that? Somebody rises from the dead and appears to you, you think that's going to change that? That's manipulation, and that will hammer you, but it's not going to change you. 
It's not going to shape you in a way that's going to last. You need a greater truth. You need that why. Why did Jesus come? Jesus says, you need a transforming, overwhelming knowledge of my love that's going to lift you from your selfishness, lift you from your self-absorption. Meditate on my love. Meditate, experience Pull away, experience my love in a way that's going to pull you away from these other things. How? Other things are going to disintegrate you. They're going to isolate you. They're going to make you lose your identity, lose yourself. That's why we scoff. That's why we despise people. That's why we detest them. That's why we gossip all the time. We gossip. It's why we fight. If you're doing that now, if you're doing that now, you're experiencing an advanced disintegration, an advanced isolation. It's going to continue. It's going to crescendo into eternity. Jesus says, you want to know my love? Because that's the cure. You want to know my love, why I came? You need to see the cross. You need to see how much I suffered for you. Why Moses and the prophets? Why does does Abraham focus on Moses and the prophets? What do the prophets say? They say, here's what Jesus experienced on the cross. It's a worse eternity than hell. Jesus suffered the eternity of the weight of hell on the cross. He took on all of our hells many times over. On the cross, Jesus experienced a disintegration. Disintegration, the the, the disintegration of the wrath of the hand of God. On the cross, Jesus is crying out for relief. He said, I'm thirsty. Just like the rich man, he says, I'm thirsty. Why? Because what he's saying is, I'm experiencing the consuming fire of the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, it says, you know, Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets in the whole Bible. It says, Jesus Christ is disfigured. His body will be torn. He will be marred to the degree you cannot even recognize him. In other words, he will not be known. You will look at him and say, who is that? He will not be known. Unrecognizable. In other words, his body will be disintegrating and he will experience the isolation from men. His body will be falling apart and he will experience complete isolation. And yet, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is what? This is what he's saying. Now, I've been isolated from the Father. I've called him Father. Do you know that's the only passage in the Gospels where Jesus does not refer to God as his Father? He says, my God, my God. Completely isolated completely he's disintegrating body and soul the wrath of god is pouring out onto him and yet he's saying now i'm experiencing the chasm the distancing i'm falling apart in second corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 we read for you know the grace of the lord jesus that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich you know what that means Jesus is the rich man, isn't he? Jesus had status. Jesus had honor. Jesus had glory. Jesus is the son. He has a pedigree. He is the son of the almighty king. And yet, he became Lazarus. Hungry. Thirsty. Lazarus was hungry. The dogs were licking his sores. In Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is a psalm about Jesus Christ. He says, my tears have been my food. I'm hungry. The dogs are encircling me. He became the Lazarus. 
On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That means I'm getting the fire, I'm getting the isolation, the ultimate isolation, the ultimate disintegration, separation from God. We said hell is utter separation from God. Jesus is saying, I am experiencing hell, suffering hell on the cross, the chasm, the separation, and he did this for you, and he did this for me. Look at the beauty of Christ. Do you, you don't know how beautiful it is? We said hell is a place we choose. Jesus chose it. He chose it for you. Psalm 53 said he was glad. When, he's, when he was suffering, in the suffering, he's just suffering and suffering and suffering, physically and spiritually, and God has distanced himself, and he sees the chasm, and he's crying out, and he's thirsty, and he's crying out, and yet he says, my God, He's still worshiping. He's saying, I'm glad to do this for you. That's his love. Does that get you? That's got to get you. Does that move you? Body and soul torn apart. And he says, yes, give it to me. More, more. I want to suck all of it out until there's none left. That's the love of God. Look at the beauty of God. Look at the love of the father sacrificing his son. Can you imagine the father? I mean, you have a hard time walking away from your children for like an hour. Look at the father completely letting his son go. Can you imagine that? Look at the beauty of God. Look at the beauty of Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the endurance and patient love of Christ. That means that unless you know the depths of that suffering of Christ, you have no idea what you are worth. You have no idea what, how much you're valued, your significance, your direction. You know, people say, well, I'd rather just believe that God is a God of love. Then you'll never get the depth of that love. You know, a God that's just a God of love that loves everybody is not loving. <laughs> right? A God that does not suffer for the people he loves is not truly loving. You never get the depths of that love because it costs nothing for you to get that love. True love. I mean, he has suffered. And a God that just says, hey, yeah, I just love everybody means that he is not just. There's no real forgiveness. There's no payment for the cost of deep hurts. He does not truly understand. Evil will win in the end. If, even, if he even lets one sin go, think about it. Even the subtlest white lie in the world. He says, I'm going to forgive everything but that one. I'm going to pay for everything but that one then that means evil still has a chance. It's a seed. To suffer, to let all of it go, to forgive everything that we've done, that makes him just and loving. And he made a way for you to receive it, to be redeemed, to be redeemed in that. Look at that suffering. All that suffering. And he says, son, you are worth it. If you were the only one left, you would have been worth it. I went to hell. I went through hell, millions of hells, billions of hells, all for you, only for you. Today, will you let the love of Christ, will you let his name, God says, I will send the one to whom my name is in so that he would sacrifice his name so that you would have his name. Will you let Jesus Christ be your identity? Let him be your name and you will have a name that lasts into eternity. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.